Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your best day. Uh, there's a few coming through. Thank you. Thank you for sharing them. Uh, Mike says, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Imelda, today because I only have today to do what God wants me to do. Like it. Uh, Mim said, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Ron said, Every Sunday. Uh, Jeff has said, The day the lockdown finishes. Jeff, do you know something that we don't know? You're going to become the new TikTok guy, aren't you? John Bernard Kairouz, you are him. Uh, anyway, how do I know that guy's name? Anyway, Easter and Christmas for me, uh, says Trish. Marcus, thanks Marcus. Christmas, Fraser says Easter, you got them both covered. Well done, boys. Fantastic. Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. Paul, the last day of school. Very good. So you'd be very happy just now. Uh, Max and Esther, the best day will, when, will be when, we, when the lockdown ends from Max and Esther. Well done. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, now, you're all, very, um, you're, you're all very helpful, of course, but uh, I, I'm going to be a little bit, um, well, a little bit less helpful. I think the most important day of the year is the first day of the first cricket test match played in Australia, usually around about November, extremely important, closely followed up by the day that the WWE Royal Rumble happens, which I think is also increasingly important. Uh, if you want to ask questions, slido.com, using the hashtag HBSP about my uh, state of mind. All right, today we are going to think about Christology, as Ella has already mentioned. But in, un- in understanding Christology, in many ways we do under- need to understand the two days that you have mentioned. We need to understand Christmas and we need to understand Easter. And today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to study the person of Christ. That's what Christology means. Although we could be here for hours and hours saying many, many things about the person of Christ, we're going to limit ourselves today to speaking about Christmas and speaking about Easter. And in the middle, we'll speak about Jesus' life by using uh, three words to describe his life. Now, this is not all that could be said about Christology, but we hope to be able to focus in on the key aspects of who Jesus is so that we might understand the nature of our salvation and what he has done for us and that we might fix our eyes on him. So, reminder, today we are uh, asking and answering questions at the end of the sermon at slido.com using the hashtag HBS. P And today, like we did a couple of weeks ago in the Trinity, we're going to go nice and deep on what it means uh, for Jesus to be our saviour. So let me pray as we need God's help. You might need a pen and paper, something to write something down, uh, a few verses, and we're going to get into God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. And we ask please now that as we focus on who Jesus is, you might calm our minds to see him clearly so that we might love him more and be ready to serve him in all that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start with Christmas. I've said it here before. I've got to tell you, I think being uh, a vegan or vegetarian at Christmas time has to be incredibly difficult. Uh, Incredibly difficult because when it comes to Christmas, you just have to eat mountain upon mountain of that funny-coloured, beautiful ham that comes off the bone. It's beautiful. It would be a hard time not to be a carnivore. Whether it's turkey, whether it's ham, whether it's chicken, whatever it is that you have on your Christmas table, it would be hard to eat only salad at that time because, for me, Christmas is about meat. 
But actually, when we get a little further into it and we think about the theology of Christmas, Christmas is actually all about meat. Of course, I might be a little facetious and silly in talking about being the meat on the middle of the table. But the incarnation, which we remember at Christmas time, is actually really about Jesus putting on meat, putting on flesh. We call ourselves a carnivore if we eat that meat at Christmas time. And we hear that same part of the word in incarnation. Jesus putting on our flesh. Now we see this in various different places, but we most clearly see it in the book of John. A part of the Bible we've already seen in this series. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Later in the chapter, we find out this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory is of the only son of the father, uh, from the father, full of grace and truth. And then further in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the father's side, this word who has put on flesh, he has made God known. Here is the incarnation in just a few words. Jesus is God and man. Now, what does this mean? How can it be that the Son of God, the Word of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, might put on flesh and be like us? Well, this is the mystery, the secret of the incarnation, what we remember at Christmas time as Jesus comes to this earth as a person. So let's look at this from a biblical standpoint. What does it mean for Jesus to be both human and divine, man and God? Well, let's start by looking at Jesus' humanity. As we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus was just like us. He got tired and hungry and thirsty. He was sad and happy. He, he cried and he rested and he was a young child, just like each of us were or now are. He grew in wisdom as we ourselves do. He was tempted. As we know from the Gospels, he was tempted in the desert by Satan. And yet throughout his life, he was also tempted throughout his life to abandon his father to go away from the plan that was given to him. He was like us, always tempted by self-glory, self-gain and pride. And yet, as we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, we see this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is like us in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 talks about this a little bit more. You'll see this on your screen as well. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And we'll talk about that verse a little bit more later on. Jesus was truly and completely and 100% human. He shared and shares with us 
the human nature that we have. He is 100% truly and completely human. However, he is also truly, completely and 100% God. Again, we see this throughout the Gospels as Jesus does things which only God can do. Think of the provision of God. We talked two weeks ago about the provision of God. And in the Gospels, on very many occasions, Jesus provides for people, making a lot of food out of just a small amount of food. He is the God who provides. Think of the many occasions where Jesus takes the chaos of water, the same chaos of water that we see right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, and it brings order to the chaos, just as God did in creation of the world. As Jesus brings calm to the storm, and as he walks on the water, what he is doing is far more even than power over creation. He is bringing order to chaos, just as God does in Genesis 1. This is why, as a result, the disciples who were in the boat with Jesus found the storm to be incredibly terrifying, even though most of them were professional fishermen. But once Jesus calmed the storm, they were even more terrified than they were of the storm. Because God was with them. Of course, there are other occasions where the curse of sin is reversed for a time, in that sickness is healed and death is defeated Jesus in the gospels does things that only God can do now in the gospel narratives of course and Matthew Mark Luke and John people who meet Jesus are coming to terms with this reality who is Jesus and why is he able to do these things and so on and sometimes they're happy with it and oftentimes they're not happy with it and when they find out that Jesus really is who he says he is that he is God with us he's told they're told oftentimes aren't they to be quiet Well, why is this? Well, because humanity have a great track record of rejecting God. And eventually, when they work out who Jesus is, that he is God, they kill him. People do not like to live with God. This is the nature of our sinfulness. And we end up rejecting and killing God. Now, the Gospels make it clear, Jesus is God with us. And the writers who explain for us after the coming of Jesus, the significance of what Jesus has done, tell us the very same thing. Uh, We could pick a number of passages, but look at just these three. First of all, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour. God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then we saw this, didn't we, earlier in the series when Thomas saw Jesus resurrected from the dead with his own eyes, Thomas answered, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus is truly and completely and 100% God. But here is the mystery. And here we get to a point quite similar to what we talked about a few weeks ago in the mystery of the Trinity. Here in Jesus, we have one person with two natures. Now, we are one person 
with one nature. We all have the same human nature. But Jesus is one person with two natures. Perfectly, completely and 100% God and perfectly, completely and 100% man. And this is where, like the Trinity, it starts to do our head in just a little bit. How can this possibly work? How can you have one person with two natures and for many a year? People have tried to get their heads around this reality of the incarnation. How it can be that one person can have two natures. And in many ways, this remains for us a mystery. It's like the Trinity, so big that our minds can't conceive of it. And this is what brings us to the point of worship. And so it should be with the incarnation as well. Nonetheless, many of us want to try and work out how can this possibly work. And so here's where we're going to go just a little bit deeper for a moment. We're going to think about what does it mean for Jesus to be one person with two natures. We're going to have a look at some of the things that people have said throughout history to help us understand what this means. You'll see on your screen a diagram. People like to try and work out what it means for Jesus to be incarnate in this way. Some people say, oh, well, it must be sort of this fusion between the half divine nature and half human nature, and we'll come to that in a minute. Or it must be that there's sort of a divine nature of Jesus and a human nature of Jesus, and they overlap, and that piece in the middle of the Venn diagram there, in the middle must be the place where Jesus is. But both of these are errors of the incarnation. See, there there is much we can say about who Jesus is, but the way we understand the incarnation is we say these are the things we need to steer away from. Let me show you with three more diagrams. The first is we need to understand that Jesus is one person with two natures without confusion. On your screen is a a diagram of what someone has said in the past, a guy called uh, Eutychius, Uh, But he has become famous because he's now a heresy uh, from 380 to 456 AD. And what he said was that the divine nature on the left hand side of your screen was mixed with the human nature. And what you ended up with was a third nature. That's how it kind of worked. But here's the problem with that view. The problem is it doesn't work. If you mix the infinite God with finite humanity then the finite humanity will just be enveloped into the infinite God. It's like taking a a drop of cordial and placing it in the Pacific Ocean down at Stanwell Park this afternoon and expecting the ocean to turn green. No, Jesus needs to not be partly human or a drop of human in the mix of infinite, infinite divinity. No, we need him to be fully human to save us. Fully human. One theologian from that time, he's got a great name, Gregory of Nazianzus. He said, what is assumed cannot be healed. Jesus needs to assume our humanity perfectly in order to heal our humanity and save us. So Jesus is one person, two natures without confusion. Secondly, uh, you'll see on your screen, Jesus is one person with two natures without change. This is the idea that Jesus was divine when he came to earth, but that he laid aside his divine nature to take on human nature. Now, this view uh, is, uh, is uh, 
often taken from the book of Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. And in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, we see that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself and put these things aside. But this doesn't mean that Jesus uh, uh, stopped, I don't think we've got that one, Jesus stopped being God. He didn't pop out of the womb reciting theology. He didn't lay aside his godness so that he was not God for a time. Jesus was always 100% God and 100% man. Uh, Thirdly, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, one man, two natures, without division or separation. This is the third uh, diagram that you've got here. In this theory, Jesus can turn off his natures, his divine nature and his human nature, and one is seen in front of the other. They're independent natures, not connected. But we've said over time, historical people have said over time, you cannot separate the natures of Jesus. They're united, though they are distinct. Now you might say, who cares about all of that stuff? What does it matter? Why is it important that we try to work out how Jesus is one person with two natures? Well, it's essential, actually, to the nature of our faith. Because you see, if Jesus is just a mixture of God and man in some mixed way, then he cannot save us. He must be 100% God and he must be 100% man. He must be completely God and completely man. He must perfectly have our human nature and perfectly have the divine nature or else he cannot save us. As that theologian of the past, Gregory of Nazianzus said, what, cannot, what is not assumed cannot be healed. He must be perfectly human. But he must also be perfectly God because only God can bear the wrath of God in our place. See, this deep theology is important for us because without it, we cannot be saved. We cannot know God. We cannot be reconciled to God. It's essential for our faith. But secondly, it's important for us because it means if Jesus is 100% man, he has taken on our human nature perfectly, then he knows us and he can relate to us. He understands how we feel. As we saw earlier on, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say this. Look at what it says on your screen. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Here it is. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then draw uh, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not playing pretend games with us, He is really, truly human. He knows us. He understands our humanity perfectly. And so we can come confidently to him as man and as God as well. Thirdly, as we saw earlier, he is our substitute. This is incredibly important for us. He is our substitute. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus has a confused or mixed nature, 
if his nature is changing, sometimes divine and then sometimes human, or it's divided in some way, he cannot be our perfect substitute. For he needs to be perfectly human in order to substitute in our place. See, this deep theology is very important for us and we need to hold intention that he is one person with two natures, not confused, not changing, not divided or separated, but perfectly existing in one person. See, this is the big difference and sticking point between us and groups like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians who all believe in a Jesus that cannot save because he is, neither, uh, he is not a person with, uh, one person with two natures. He is something different. And without this one person in two natures, he cannot save us. See, the great Christmas carol says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It's a deep line, isn't it? A great song for us to sing at any time, and especially at Christmas. Well, Jesus is our incarnate saviour. But before we get to Easter, let's talk about Jesus' life. As we said at the beginning, there's much we could say about Jesus' life, but we're going to focus here just quickly on the offices of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there were three leadership positions that were held in the nation of Israel. Prophet, priest and king. And Jesus fulfills each of these perfectly. Let's have a look just at each one in turn just now. First, the prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophet brought the word of God to the people. He was the one who was able to say, thus says the Lord, this is what God says. The prophet was the mouthpiece of God. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the true and final prophet. Look at what Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the prophet of God. Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? We saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 1, Jesus is the word of God that brings creation to be. John chapter 1 speaks about him as the word, and now he is the true and final prophet of God. Jesus is the focus of God's word. He is the subject of God's word. But he is also the author of God's word. He is the only one today that is able to say, this is what the Lord says. This is why no one else can do it. He is the one that holds the office of prophet today. Now, what does it mean for teachers and preachers? Well, teachers and preachers in the church of God still exist today, but what do they do? Well, they do nothing more than point back to the great prophet, the Lord Jesus who speaks a word from God that nobody else can speak. Jesus is our prophet, but he's also our priest. In the Old Testament, the priest spoke on behalf of the people. He spoke to God for the people. 
The people were not allowed to address God by themselves in the nation of Israel. They required a priest who would pray for them, offer sacrifices for them and declare forgiveness from God to the people. But we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who offers the sacrifice for us. And more than that, he is the sacrifice for us. Just look at these three verses on your screen from the book of Hebrews. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And Hebrews 5 tells us he's a priest forever. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then finally in Hebrews 7.25, we find that Jesus continues to pray for us as our priest. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the priest He is a priest so that we need no other priests anymore. Again, what does this mean for Christian leaders and leadership? Well, it means that all Christian leaders do today is point to the great high priest, the one who speaks to God on our behalf, the one who offers prayers on our behalf, the one who declares forgiveness to us. As 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says, he is the one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus he is our priest but finally Jesus is our king in the old testament the king of course was the leader of God's people but they were always supposed to be a leader under the authority of God not many of the kings of the old testament understood this if if you read the book of kings you see time and time again they were evil in God's sight evil in God's sight evil in God's sight And even David, who is described as a good king in the scriptures, was a very sinful man. And yet even David recognised that there was a greater king coming in the future, even greater than him, who would sit as the king of God's people forever. A king who was promised in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Jesus is our true and everlasting king. He is the king of this world. He is the king of the kingdom and he is the king of God's people. This means for us that he is our authority. He is the one who speaks to us. He is the one to whom we speak to God through Jesus to the father. And he is the one who leads us as our king in this world. He is our prophet, our priest and our king. Well, if you've been waiting for the chocolate... Now is the time we turn now to Easter. As we finish this morning, we turn to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Having been born into this world as one man with two natures in the incarnation, Jesus comes with the mission of death. As we've been looking in the fresh Bible bites through the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus be identified by Peter as the Christ. And then having been identified, he now starts to turn his face towards his suffering and death. This is his mission. 
Now, in many ways, the death of Jesus on a cross just outside Jerusalem is the story of a man dying and nothing more. Repeated many times in history. And for some people, they use this story as simply a story of a man who was anti-establishment, who wanted to overthrow and stand up to those in power. And that's all the death of Jesus is for some. But the death of Jesus is far more significant than that, according to the pages of the New Testament. First of all, Jesus' death is a redemption or a rescue. You might remember last week we talked about how we are dead in sin, enslaved to sin, leading to an inevitable death and impending judgment. But the death of Jesus in so many occasions in the New Testament is described as a rescue, a redemption, as Jesus' death buys us back from that slavery to sin. Look at these two passages in Galatians 3 and Colossians 1. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And again in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to die on a cross to rescue and redeem. But secondly, Jesus' death on the cross was also a sacrifice. Jesus' death did not simply just wash us clean, but Jesus' death healed the wounds, the war that exists between God and humanity. For the sin of us that is in all of our heart requires there to be a war between us and God. We are at war with our creator. But the anger that is there between God and ourselves is dealt with in the person of Christ, in the word that is used in the scriptures, propitiation as God's anger is taken away, absorbed and deflected by Jesus Christ. Look at these two passages in 1 John. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in this, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for what we have done against God. He is our rescue, our redemption, our sacrifice. He is the one who brings us into right relationship with God. Look at these two verses from Galatians 3 and Romans chapter 4. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. See, Jesus did die as our sacrifice, redemption, as our rescue. But none of that means anything if he did not rise from the dead. Indeed, if you want to disprove Christianity, the way to do so is to attack the resurrection and show that it was not true. Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But thankfully, Jesus is alive. He was raised. He did rise from the dead. And though this means a range of things, it means at least three things for us first Jesus is proven to be God 
and man. These two passages on your screen, amongst others, show us this. John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus' resurrection vindicates his relationship to the Father. That only God could be raised from the dead in this way. Secondly, the resurrection shows us that the cross, the cross of Jesus where he was the sacrifice, the rescue and the redemption, that it actually worked. Look at these two passages from 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The cross worked. It did what it was designed to do. It paid the penalty as Jesus was our substitute, sacrificed to redeem and rescue us. Finally, the resurrection proves That if Jesus was raised from the dead, then we ourselves will be raised from the dead if we trust in Jesus as well. Look at these verses on your screen. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died belonging to Jesus. And this is what it will be like. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with them, those who have died in the faith, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus died and was resurrected. His resurrection vindicates who he was in his relationship to the Father, shows us that the cross did its job and shows us that we too will be resurrected in the same way Jesus was if we've put our trust in him. Jesus is the key, the centerpiece, the focus of our faith. He's the place we start when we go to talking to people about who God is and what he's done for us. He is at the centre of our theology. For he's the place where God has revealed himself perfectly to us in the person of Jesus. He is our prophet who speaks to us on behalf of God. He is our priest to whom we speak to God through him. He is our king, our leader in this world. He is truly human, truly divine, one person with two natures who takes the wrath of God for us. Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. And so, as in, in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Look at verse 2 there, right in the middle, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith faith whatever else you do fix your eyes upon jesus get to know him find out the depths of his character understand what it is that he has done for you and treasure the love that jesus has shown for you that in him you might be called a child of god well i'm going to ask now if you have any questions you might do after we've gone so deeply into who jesus is 
Uh, but let's spend some time reflecting, thinking together, and maybe asking a question at slido.com, and I'll be back in uh, a minute or two's time to answer some of those questions. All right, thank you for your questions. Uh, a couple of questions have come through. Thank you for asking them. The first is, is this. How would you explain uh, that Jesus was fully man and fully God to someone who doesn't know and believe in him? Uh, I think I would read the Gospels with them because the Gospels do this in the best possible way. Uh, they show us very clearly uh, that Jesus was a real person, people ate and drank with him and people uh, uh, saw him rest and so on, uh, but they also saw him do things that, that, God wasn't, uh, that, that only God could do. So I think, for me, that is the best way to show people. Um, I don't think you need to know all those other bits and pieces about the incarnation of Jesus necessarily, any more than you need to definitely know all those things about the Trinity. But what's important is that you don't deny those realities uh, that's when you stop, uh, that's when you walk outside of the boundaries of orthodox Christian belief. Uh, and that's, uh, that's an important one. Uh, and so I think I would, I would read the Gospels with people and uh, let them discover Jesus on the pages of Scripture uh, and, uh, and see him there personally. And you just discover how can he do these things that only God can do. So I think that's, that's where I would go there. Uh, Steve, thanks for your question. And uh, somebody else who said yeah what Steve Lucas asked good thank you um, if the word became flesh and dwelt among us uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 was Jesus fully man before he entered the world uh, has the ascension changed his nature in any respect um, uh, let's go to the first part of that question was he fully man before he entered the world no he took on the uh, he took on our flesh uh, when he came into into the world that's the amazing nature of the incarnation that he put on flesh at that time um, so he was uh, it, it's even probably not quite right to call him Jesus at that point you're going to say he's the word of God before that point the second person of the trinity the word of God at that point uh, and that he became 
uh, flesh and dwelt among us at that point and then took on the name Jesus as well, which is uh, something that happened uh, there. So no, he was not fully man until the incarnation. Um, secondly, has, has the ascension uh, changed his nature in any respect? Uh, this is a great question. No, the answer is uh, Jesus will be uh, human uh, for in, in this same way, one person with two natures forever. Uh, and so has it changed uh, his nature in any respect? Um, yes, I think it can mean that Jesus uh, is uh, able uh, to, uh, to, to, do, to do and know more things now uh, than he was able to do in his earthly uh, ministry. How that works out, I'm not quite sure, because we don't have any information really about that. But what we do know is that Jesus is uh, going to come back and judge the world, that he'll be able to do that uh, at some point in history, uh, all at the same time. Now, how does that work when you're a man in a body and so on? I'm not quite sure. Um, none of that is clear from the scriptures, but it is clear that Jesus remains human uh, to advocate on our behalf and to continue to represent us before God. And so what's amazing about the incarnation is that the second person of the Trinity took on humanity forever and he will forever be uh, in the body as one of our brothers. Um, uh, thanks for your question, Steve. That's, uh, that's really helpful. Finally, can you re- reiterate, please, why Jesus must be fully human to save us, the main point mainly. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll use an analogy. It's not a very good one, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. I've used this before. That imagine that God is here and we are here and we're at war with each other. Um, if we send out a, a, uh, a peacemaker to the middle of the field in the war between us and God, uh, then that's not going to, to work. Uh, we're going to send one person out. That person is not going to be able to perfectly represent uh, uh, the wrath of God. They'll get, they'll get knocked over, as it were, by the wrath of God. Uh, likewise, if God sent a representative out, that's not going to work either. What you need is someone who is perfectly God and perfectly man to bring about peace uh, between uh, God and humanity. If Jesus is not fully human, uh, then he can't perfectly represent us to God. He can't perfectly pay the penalty that must be paid upon humanity for the sin of humanity. Uh, and so if he's not fully human, 100% human and divine, has the divine nature in every way uh, and the human nature in every way, then he cannot save us. Um, it's just uh, God doing a piece of action without us uh, in the picture, if you like. And so Jesus must be fully human at the cross to be able to save us. I hope that's helpful and uh, a couple of questions there. We can continue talking about this in the chat after church, but let me pray and then we'll sing.